Hi, my name's Emma. I'm the B2B marketing manager here at Code First Girls. And this is Represent. Code First Girls is an organization that provides learning opportunities to women and non-binary people who want to learn to code for free before placing them in their first roles in tech. Represent was created to provide our community with role models of people who are absolutely smashing it in the world of technology. So I'm really excited to be joined by the Chief Product Officer for LV, Sarah Liddell. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Hi, Emma. It's a pleasure to be here. No worries at all. So a day in the life of a Chief Product Officer, what does that look like for you? Um... So if I'm going to the office, I'll uh, head into either uh, our London office or our Bristol office. Uh, Bristol's very early start because I live in London. Um, first of all, check uh, Slack. Um, we do everything over Slack, which is, it kind of pings in during the day, which is a little bit annoying. But I try and get through all my Slack messages first thing. And then um, the day will be made up of, of meetings and design reviews, exact meetings, etc. So uh, I'll work uh, one-to-one with uh, individual members of my team, uh, might have exec meetings, we could have board meetings. So uh, LV is uh, a startup, so it's still, it's funded uh, by investors. So we, um, yeah, often meet with the, the rest of the board. So I will be working with, you know, different people at different levels the whole time. So it's making sure that we keep everything on track, making sure that uh, the products that we're designing are meeting the user's needs uh, and making sure that we're aligning with, um, you know, our, our sort of company mission and, and our uh, board's expectations. So it's a mixture. Every day is different. And you mentioned the products that you're designing there. So for people who don't know, what is LV creating? So our mission is to empower women through radical female-first technology for women's health and well-being. So um, our company was founded by Tanya Boller in 2013, so we're nearly 10 years old. And it was initially founded um, after she uh, had her children and realised that the solutions for improving her pelvic floor health after birth were quite frankly kind of Victorian and that that most technology for women's health was really in the dark ages. So um, with her co-founder, Alex, she uh, set about trying to understand how we could uh, make products that uh, were more consumer friendly and met the, the consumer's needs. So um, uh, uh, they created the LV Trainer, which was the first product, which was um, a pelvic floor uh, trainer that it was connected to an app and you uh, it helps teach you how to do your pelvic floor exercises so around 30 percent of women who do pelvic floor exercises do them slightly wrong and you can actually damage your pelvic floor if you if you kind of push down rather than pulling up so um they uh that was the first product and then uh the products continue to evolve we've looked at lots and lots of different things always trying to um, meet the consumer's uh, needs where they've previously been unmet. So the next product and the things that LV are probably most famous for are the uh, wireless wearable breast pumps. So in 2018, we released um, our first 
wearable breast pump and it's uh, again a connected device so uh the the actual breast pump will you can just wear it in your bra you're not connected to the wall there's no wires etc and you can turn it on and off with an app so i could be sitting here breast pumping right now actually but um, i'm not but uh, uh yeah and there's they're silent too so um we're constantly looking for um sort of products that will address women's health and well-being issues. Um, women have often been uh, underrepresented in, in health outcomes. So, um, yeah, we shouldn't be running out of ideas anytime soon. Absolutely not. I can think about 10 just sitting here. <laughs> yeah. So we'll come back to LV and the products of within Femtech. Um, but let's think a little bit about you and your journey. So first of all, you've, you might have gone to Bristol, you might be in London. How do you, how do you decompress after a long day? Um, so, uh, yeah, I've got to resist the urge to kind of drink a bottle of wine since I get home. No. <laughs> Joking. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, no, so how do I compress after a, a long day? Well, um, I love food. My husband's a chef, so that all works quite well. Um, uh, I have um, a big fluffy dog who I adore. So uh, actually she loves being brushed and I love brushing her. So that's always very relaxing, a bit of zen. Uh, I do a bit of cycling. So if I'm in uh, London uh, coming back from work, I'll cycle back from work and I find that quite kind of decompressing. Uh, and uh, I live on a Dutch barge on the Thames. So um, I'm always uh, finding little kind of problems to solve, things to kind of tinker with. I love DIY and things. So I'm always sort of making things, sometimes sort of more crafty things, sometimes ridiculous kind of engineering things. So um, yeah, that's how I relax. I'm an active relaxer, I've been told. <laughs> active relaxer. And living on transport is a bit of a theme in your life because oh. you did live on a bus. Am I correct? <laughs> yes. So I did. and that's when you realised that you were a really good problem solver because you were constantly fixing things. Yes. So um uh back in the late eighties, uh during the kind of like early rave scene in the UK. I did uh, live on a bus and uh, change multiple gearboxes, constantly repairing things. We were often sort of breaking down on our way to or from somewhere. So um, that is uh, was actually quite a pivotal point in my life because I kind of started to realise I was naturally quite a good problem solver and um, had a, a sort of more engineering mechanical mind than I'd sort of previously thought. So, um, yeah, getting to know myself in those years was was really important actually as part of my career going forward. And you're a you're a career switcher, we would call you in our yes. lexicon. So yeah. you were an artist, studied fine art. You were working on the bus, working on props and whatnot. And you weren't always destined for a career in technology. No, not at all. So um, when I was at school, I was, I mean, I, I wasn't super tech, but I, you know, I, I was kind of, as I say, a problem solver. But I was also like quite artistic. I was like really into um, sort of the creative side of things. So um, my school kind of pushed me more down the creative route. I think sort of back in those days in the early 80s, um, 
you know, it sort of girls weren't encouraged into more STEM subjects. So I was sort of pushed into the more um, arts-based subjects and I actually went and did my degree in fine arts. So um, I then, uh, as I was saying, yeah, travelling rounds, was uh, got into the kind of um, props industry, was doing upholstered props, um, and uh, which was a bit of problem-solving but not kind of quite as... I don't know, but it wasn't mission-driven, basically, and I wasn't really solving any meaty problems. I was sort of solving how to make things in a way that I could get them done quickly for a, you know, for a theatre or something. So um had my children uh, in the early 90s and um, found myself as a single mum and realised that a career in props was just what didn't really work around childcare, you know, the deadlines, etc. I'd often have to be working through the night on, you know, to meet deadlines. And it just wasn't really, yeah, viable with a family. So at the same time, I'd sort of got to know myself over the years and realised I was a lot more technical than I'd sort of previously been pigeonholed as. And then also being... um a young mum and a consumer of products that were designed for me as a woman and a mum, I found those products really lacking. So uh, back in those days, you you couldn't take a pushchair onto a bus. You had to fold a pushchair up if you wanted to get on the bus. And in fact, the bus drivers would just drive past you if your pushchair wasn't folded up. So you know, and pushchairs were really complicated things. You know, you needed two hands to fold them. And what would you do with your baby? You would have to put your baby on the pavement or pass it to a stranger whilst you folded up your pushchair. And I just thought, surely, you know, there's better solutions to this. So when my kids started school, um, I went back to do my second degree in product design and engineering and, yeah, basically did a, a kind of career switch, um, which was... Um, quite kind of intimidating I, I I mean I wasn't very old I was only 29 but I I kind of thought I was probably a bit past it age 29 which I now look back and realize how <laughs> young I was but um so yeah it was but I I think what was really great about that was um I kind of knew why I was there I wasn't on an education conveyor belt and I really think that going back into education as a career switch is great because you know why you're there you're not just there on the education conveyor belt you're much more motivated and dedicated absolutely and what you found is a career that yes it brings out your technological interest and pushes you in areas of creating new products that are mission driven like you said yeah but it is creative you know just because you're a creative person doesn't mean that you have to become an artist no exactly Let's talk for a moment about that early career or the second career round when you were mm-hmm. working at Dyson. Um, you were one of four engineers in uh, 240 yeah. or something men. Yeah. Um, so talk me through that experience. You mentioned that you weren't actually expecting it to be so male-dominated or maybe the thought just hadn't crossed your mind. The thought hadn't crossed my mind, yeah. So um, so when I went for my interview at Dyson, my um, my portfolio and a lot of my experience had been much more kind of creative and mm-hmm. I didn't have a sort of massively engineering portfolio. Um, I always used to drive classic cars. So when I pulled up in the car park, I parked my classic car in the space that was closest to the door. 
during my interview, the uh, security guard came up to the office and said, um, is that your car parked in James's space? And mentioned it was a classic and it was James Dyson's space. I'd parked in his own personal space. <laughs> but um, the fact it was a classic car came up. And then for the rest of my interview, we ended up, uh, me and the interviewer talking about classic cars and my love of cars and all the work I'd done on them and, you know, the mechanics I'd done. So it wasn't necessarily um, just my my kind of degree and my qualifications that got me the job. It was it was my experience that I'd already gained in my life uh, that helped get me in. So back to your question about uh, had I expected it to be quite so male dominated? To be honest, it hadn't really crossed my mind. When I got there, I was the fourth woman out of two hundred and forty engineers. Um, I didn't. I mean, I think the thing that was most intimidating um, about that career switch to me at the time was it was the first time of me doing sort of my new job and I was full of self-doubt and uh, sort of, I guess, a touch of imposter syndrome. Um, yeah, I was I, – I, and I, I think I probably did stand out quite a bit because I was a woman there. So sort of walking around the offices, everyone was like, "Oh, who's the who's the new girl?" And in fact, on my first day on the job, um, when I left at the end of the day at five thirty, I walked out to the massive car park and couldn't find my car. Um, I'd forgotten where I'd parked it, and I was so embarrassed and thought that everyone would be judging me on the fact that I didn't know where my car was. I went back in and worked for another hour until the car park had emptied out, and then went and found my car in the empty car park. Just because, you know, you do kind of doubt yourself and you feel that everyone's judging you, but I doubt anyone had noticed. And the landscape is getting better for women going into more male-dominated spaces at work. But for a lot of our community, they might be going into their first role in technology and they might be facing uh, you know, a boardroom full of male software engineers. Yeah. So what advice do you have for them? You mentioned imposter syndrome there and being intimidated and doubting yourself. Now, all of those things are very natural. I think mm. it's impossible to say, you know, this morning I'm going to go into work and I'm going to decide not to have imposter syndrome because... Because male or female, a lot of people experience that, especially on their first time in a role. But what advice would you give to women who are potentially maybe a little bit more intimidated than they would be otherwise, knowing that they're going to be in the gender minority? Um, I would say um, don't judge yourself on how you feel on the inside in comparison to how everyone else is sort of projecting on the outside, because they're probably also all kind of suffering inside and and have a bit of imposter syndrome. So, um, you know, you know more than you think. You know, if you've if you've done one of the uh, the Code First Girls courses, you've you know you now have a qualification. So, you know, you you have every right to be there as much as anyone else. You you know you do know more than you think you know. Great advice. And you were given the job for a reason at the end of the day. Exactly. So believe yeah, it. Yeah. Have, have belief in yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you'll have good days and you'll have bad days. And, you know, that's part of stretching yourself. You know, it, you will have times where you feel uncomfortable, but you will get through it. And you just have to sort of look back and celebrate those successes and 
realize that you know it hasn't broken you and you you can do it and then the next time you encounter those situations you will feel a bit more comfortable with them so your first day is always going to be hard and your first few months are going to be hard but you'll soon kind of slot in and realize actually that you you know you you've got this you've got this so we were talking about your time at Dyson, obviously working on hardware. Mm. Um, and then your crew sort of transitioned into this space with wearables and smart devices and connected devices. Can you talk us through a little bit as to your experience of watching wearables and connected devices really uh, evolve and what your predictions might be for the next five years of those? What do I think the future holds? Well, I mean... AI really I mean it's got there's got to be some big changes with AI so I think um, from a um, femtech perspective so connected devices I think I mean women's uh, health issues have been so neglected by the establishment for so long most um, most health outcomes are determined by um, the data from male health out, uh, well, male sort of recovery or or data on male health. So, women's uh, health has been really, really neglected, and I think that um, with the um, the the kind of rise in many more connected devices that are constantly monitoring uh, data. Uh, I th- or, or health data. I think that we will have much more um, anonymized but democratized data. And with the rise in AI, I'm hoping that that data will be um, gender disaggregated now, and we will you we will actually start to be able to map female health outcomes versus male health outcomes. Absolutely. Did you see just yesterday AI found a tumor in a breast just four no. years before four years wow. before it developed. Wow. So it's just one example. You know, you've got breast cancer, you've got endometriosis, you've got chronic UTI, you've got all of yeah. these very specific and they can affect men too, but these are massive gaps in mm. the understanding of uh health you know health in general Mm. and actually if technology can come on and speed up that process around understanding of a woman's experience and all of the medications that could be used to prevent some of those things and help Mm. then you know that's a catch-up race that i think most people can certainly endorse yeah and do you know with within femtech is it quite common to work with healthcare providers to provide that data and further the research around it so um i don't think that is happening a lot at the moment there's a but i think that is the direction of travel so a, a lot of femtech companies smaller companies than ours uh, have been set up um maybe by healthcare professionals that are partnering with tech professionals so um i think that the direction of travel is is certainly that way i mean at, at lv we work with um uh healthcare industry in uh the fact that we ha- i mean we have our breast pump our first breast pump that we created but then we also created uh, the stride product so that we could work with the the healthcare insurance market so it's a, for the US it's a for uh, a reimbursable um breast pump for that so we are creating products that will work with the with healthcare professionals 
Absolutely. And let's focus on the UK for a moment. What role do you think the government and policymakers should be playing to support health tech and close that health gender gap? So I think um, definitely investment uh, in uh, the femtech industry, um, making sure, I mean, there, there have been some steps, I mean, a bit too late, just uh the making sure that um uh female health gynecology and and women's health is included in the curriculum for doctors which is uh actually becoming policy in i think 2024 um so yeah so just basically making sure that healthcare professionals uh do study women's health yeah uh, I and would then say that's yes exactly key. since like 50% of their their uh, patients are women who will have women's health issues. Yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah, so the um, I think, as I said earlier, one of the things that Femtech can really, really help with is the, helping to provide that data from wearables, et cetera. So um, working with uh, healthcare professionals to, to help with diagnoses, mm-hmm. understand the... Um, uh, you know the the run up to uh, certain conditions that women will suffer that men won't. Um, so I think, yeah, that sounds about right. And this uh, this month, we're actually partnering up with the Motherboard Charter, and we're doing a bit of an employer spotlight on those organisations that are going above and beyond to support around parental policies. So it'll be a really interesting one to give a good take on kind of UK and US job marketplace to see who is mm. leading the charge in that. Mm. Um, we've got a couple of questions from our community here. Um, one of them said, I've just started my first role as a product manager. So as you might know, at Code First Girls, we've just launched a new project product, which is our 16-week CFG degree all around product management. So we are now creating the next generation of product managers to join organizations across across the world. But um, for this member of our community who's just started their first PM role, what advice do you have for her? Um, well, good luck. First of all, very exciting, good industry to get into uh, product management. So um, product management is around balancing the uh, the the user needs or the, the the reason for that product to be uh the technology and the the commercial imperative so um it's about making sure that you've got that healthy tension between all those uh those those three areas but i, I would say just make sure that you keep the user's needs at the heart of 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 what you do and the product outcomes so um prioritize based on what is going to make the most impact first for your mvp um and then you know create a create a roadmap that that keeps uh, keeps the products fresh and exciting and a lot of people don't really understand a career path and like we've mentioned there's no one career path but if you were a junior product manager and one day you looked up and wanted to be a chief product officer what might your career path look like well, it could go at any number of directions, I think, as I've I've shown. You can take more of a hardware, so connected device um, route, or uh, more of a tech delivery route, so just purely digital or web. Um, and, uh, yeah, always keeping the user's uh, needs at heart, um, from product manager through to senior head of 
Uh, you can either go down more of a uh, lead route where you are uh, leading from a, a more of a technical perspective or you, or maybe a, a more of a managerial route where you're sort of um, looking after people within your team. So you're sort of um, mentoring people in your team and it's it's less of a kind of delivery uh, perspective. But yeah, and then eventually, um, uh, yeah, CPA. That's really helpful, just mapping that out. Because I think for a lot of people, like you say, product management is a new role. Yeah. Um, and so just understanding where that can take you. And it doesn't necessarily have to take you to be a CPO. No, exactly. No. I mean, basically, take take life as you as you choose to, really. You can – and nothing is forever. I mean, you have a lot of career switches. Try things, be brave, you know, it, it's exciting. And if it doesn't suit you, then switch again. You don't have to have it all figured no, out. No, exactly. Just... You don't. You're figuring it out all the time. Great. And just a couple of last questions. We're asking everybody this. If you had the chance to read one book again for the first time, what would that book be? A book that made a massive impression on me years ago. And actually, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, I must reread this book. Uh, it's The Women's Room by Marilyn French. And it was published in the 70s. And I think I read it in the late 80s. And it's about a... Um, a group of women, well, one main female character and her her female friends through her life. And it, it, it just really highlights how brilliantly strong and inspiring women are throughout all their life stages. And when I read it as a sort of late teenager, I was, I think I was a bit sort of discounting of, um, you know, what it really takes to be a mother and the courage, the strength, the dedication, the selflessness that you have to have. And that book really brought that to life to me. And then I was also probably as a teenager a bit kind of down on older people and older women. And that book really, like, gave me so much respect for older women. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's possibly quite a dated book now but it is I think it's viewed as a bit of seminal feminist literature and it's it was really really great book great suggestion so final question and we ask everybody this if you had one word and it doesn't have to just be one word but if you had a word of advice for your younger self what would that be um it would be you know more than you think you do that's good advice (laughs) Is that pulling on any particular memories? Just, well, I, I would say, I mean, it's still advice I probably have to give to myself now that, you know, you you do know more than you think you do and don't doubt yourself. So, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for coming Thank in you. and talking to us and explaining your fantastic career. And we may well come into LV and check out some of your products. Yeah, we'd love I to do. take a look. Please do. Thank you. Thank you.